This week we discuss hot knives, rabbit holes, utopian visions, and macro photography with The Bubble Man, coming up next on Critical Grass. Get it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating, mind-expanding, safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing, the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical Grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical grass. My name is Marcus Richardson, a.k.a. The Bubble Man. I'm originally from the center of Canada, Winnipeg, Manitoba. I spend my days on the West Coast these days. And as for a title, I am a man of many hats, from a photographer to a cannabis entrepreneur to a chief trichome officer to a chief cannabinoid officer. I wear all sorts of hats for all sorts of companies. This week's 60-second rave was brought to you by Plebeian, with a trippy jam titled Solvent. Now, if you know anything about this week's guest, he's not exactly a fan of solvents, at least in his hash. But truth be told, I found it pretty much impossible to find a dancey jam titled Solventless Extraction. Apologies to anyone disappointed. But Solventless Extraction is exactly what our guest is all about. Marcus Bubbleman Richardson is the man of the half hour and, as he describes, is a jack of many trades. A Canadian cannabis pioneer, he started a seed company and grew hemp in the 1990s. He helped set up BC's first cannabis dispensary, created a solventless hash production method called Bubble Bags, hence his nickname. He is also an avid macro photographer with stunning images of cannabis from up close. He makes instructional videos, is active on many social media fronts, including Hash Church, Bubble Man's World, and Wake and Bake on the intertubes, and somehow still finds time to start cannabis processing facilities in numerous countries throughout the world. I myself wouldn't mind becoming a chief trichome officer somewhere someday as well. All in all, he is an incredibly knowledgeable and dedicated cannabis enthusiast slash activist who will gladly take you down any weed-related wormhole you can think of. And with a resume like that, I couldn't help but wonder how and where he got to start down the path of pot. Well, for me, it, uh, I, it would have to have started when I first tried cannabis. So that would be uh, when I was 14 years old back in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And a, a friend of mine, Steve McAvoy, had, uh, we played hockey together. Fairly, you know, competitive hockey. It was in tier. At that point, it was no longer community club hockey. It was like tier one and tier two. And, you know, although we felt like it was, you know, quite quite serious, really a very, very small percentage of people who we played hockey with went on to play uh, in the NHL. But at that point in time, 
it was very important. Cannabis was hugely, you know, looked down upon as uh, a thing uh, only losers did uh, from a sports perspective. And so myself and Steve were really the only two guys on our team that were interested in, in looking into this. So Steve had acquired some. And we went and smoked that joint behind like a BFI can, you know, behind like a little store, like a local community store, like before 7-Elevens took over and just crushed them all. They used to be like, you know, regular neighborhood owned community stores. And so behind that store, there was a, a big, uh, you know, the blue uh, bin, the garbage bin. And we just hid behind that and smoked. And it was really kind of like the scene out of Half-Baked. Where, where, you know, they smoke for the first time as young kids. And he, he says the famous line, Abba Zabba, you my only friend. But uh, it was like that for us. We just, we were like, this is awesome. And thus began really a lifelong journey. How did I really end up in the West Coast? It was kind of a funny situation where sometimes your subconscious knows you want to go somewhere, but you don't know you want to go somewhere. So all of these sort of key things had to take place, one of which was me um, building an illegal grow in my basement, actually in the basement of a home I was renting, a very big basement. I had cut it in half and put up a fake wall and built this beautiful grow, never got to light it up. Because literally, as I was about to, um, the owner of the home said, oh, we need to send in a surveyor just, you know, for some property assessment that we're doing. And he came in and surveyed the whole house and quickly was like, hey, there's ha half of the basement is missing when he started doing measurements. So I took him into the area, kind of made it look like it was like, you know, for my iguanas at the time. But it was obviously not a little secret door under the stairs, false wall, the whole thing. The guy was just like, what? And so I got evicted. The people found out and they were like, we don't know what you were going to do in there, but you're evicted. And, and that was sort of one of the key moments of me. Um, and I had been going out west since I was about nine years old with my with my grandmother and my parents had taken me out on multiple trips. And being from Winnipeg, it's, it's extremely flat, like I'm talking completely flat. So seeing mountains is almost to a young uh, to a young kid, almost a psychedelic experience where suddenly you've just never experienced this before that the land can can go so high. So I, I was really tripping on the West Coast from a, from a young age. And it just made sense, particularly after that event in, in Manitoba, that it was time to just get out that it was that the, the, the mentality and the consciousness of the people were just so stunted in Winnipeg at the time that I, I what I wanted to do wasn't the right place to do it. I think many people who are dedicated cannabis activists or enthusiasts share a similar story or at least can relate to Bubble Man in that their hometowns or places of residence aren't exactly letting them be themselves or do what they really want to do. And Vancouver seems like the natural place for a guy like him to go, what with its very relaxed attitude on life and its extremely cannabis-friendly approach. As Bubbleman said, stunted growth subconsciously drove him to greener pastures, and it's a good thing it did, otherwise the cannabis scene in Canada, and the world, uh, would look quite different to what it is today. Go west, young man, indeed. Marcus also mentioned how smoking pot was something that was for losers, and not for those interested in being Canadian gladiators, also known as hockey players. And while that may have been true back in the 1990s, times have certainly changed for cannabis use among athletes, and not just in hockey. According to ESPN.com, out of the 31 teams in the NHL at present, a whopping 28 are in states with access to legal cannabis, whether medicinal or recreational, which is the highest percentage of the four major North American professional leagues. 
Moreover, among the 123 teams in the MLB, NBA, NFL, and NHL, 45 of them play in states or provinces with legal recreational cannabis, and 56 play where medical cannabis is legal. In summary, 82% of teams are in locations where players can get medicinal or recreational weed, and if you take into account the various injuries athletes suffer, not to mention traumatic brain injuries that football and hockey players frequently suffer, it's no wonder more players are choosing cannabis to help them recover. The biggest difference with respect to the NHL, however, is that the league will not punish players for using cannabis even if they test positive for abnormal amounts. A step towards normalcy, if you ask me. But back to Bubble Man and his decision to move west. I wanted to know how he got into the scene in BC, which was still in its infancy at the time. I came from the perspective of like, I immediately fell because of my olfactory ability, my sommelier-like ability for cannabis, I was always able to smell deeper and, you know, like find quality that often people couldn't find. And so I used that skill when I came to BC and I, I brokered quite a few ca- uh, cannabis deals doing that very thing. Like people would pay me for my nose to be able to find them something that's actually really good while having integrity that's high enough to say no to something that's a potential paycheck in my pocket because it's not good enough and there was very few people in bc at the time who were willing to do that it was kind of a heyday a lot of people were coming up with a lot of cash in the 90s and just throwing it down and it created all sorts of opportunities for the the limited uh the limited visionary to rip you off or to take advantage of you in these little situations and it was very rare to have someone who was taking it seriously and willing to you know you know, move that to the next level. And because I was doing that, you know, I was able to fund um, things like help fund and and donate to the Compassion Club and help fund and donate to, you know, what Mark Emery was doing and what those guys were doing. So that's how I always kind of had those relationships where I was more like a philanthropist that would, you know, I'm not a frontline guy anymore. When I came out to BC, I was more like, you know, brokering and having to be fairly like not in the front the way those guys were, the way I was back in Manitoba. Uh, But that was fairly short lived. Um, I got into some trouble actually helping the club. I got caught with uh, 16 and a half pounds of cannabis uh, and about $6,000 cash at a roadblock one night in B.C., and uh, at that time, I didn't really think it was that serious until my lawyer at the time, John Conroy, um, who's another core kind of activist in the in the in the industry here in Canada and was responsible for our lawsuit against Health Canada to win our, you know, our ability to grow cannabis medically and, and recreationally. Huge, huge proponent of cannabis uh, for 40 plus years. He, he explained to me that when you get caught with more than three kilos in Canada, at that time, the maximum fine in prison is 25 years. So no one had ever been given it. But the fact that it was on the book sure didn't let me sleep easy at night. So when you hear things like today um, with the new law that Trudeau brought in, you'll hear laws that like now the maximum fines for certain things are 14 years in prison. And you'll hear a lot of people flipping out about that. And it is absolutely ridiculous. But they have to understand this guy's moving an elephant one inch at a time so that it doesn't squash him. And it's a very dangerous beast that he's moving. And if he moves it too fast, too quickly, he'll, he'll be taken right out. So he's moving it very slowly. Um, but, you know, 11 years shaved off that number is still a big like I would have rather it said 14 years than 25 years. But truly, both of them are absolutely ridiculous, especially for being a habitual florist. 
what you know what we all are we just love love the plant and, and, and love its energy so yeah that's uh yeah, more stories can come out of all these questions just lead me down different rabbit holes. But uh, yeah, Canada, Canada has a great uh, the West Coast in particular had an incredible core group of people. And I feel, you know, I feel pretty lucky to have been a part of it. I think it's safe to say for Bubble Man that it was a case of being at the right place at the right time, but also being with the right people, or at least going out and finding them. Woody Allen once said 80% of success is just showing up. Not sure what the other 20% would be here, but I'm guessing it's mostly weed. Okay, so maybe a little bit of follow-up and persistence, but the weed definitely helps. So by going out west and sticking his neck out, Bubble Man got to pursue one of his passions in life. But I was also curious about his other passion, macrophotography, and how he fell down that rabbit hole. Well, it really was about learning. So originally, the first time I ever had been exposed to anything like that would have been from a Dutch gentleman by the name of Joop Dumas. And Joop Dumas used an electron scan microscope to photograph um, some trichomes on living cannabis plants. Uh, it's got to be back in the late 80s, early 90s. So on my first trip to Amsterdam, which would have been 94, 95, I came across his cards and I purchased some of them. And so when I started my company in 99, Fresh Headies, the bubble bag company, how I became bubble man, that happened very soon after I was arrested at the roadblock. You know, I went through court for all of that. I got no fine. I got no time. The judge ordered my money be given back. And it was the first compassionate club case that really led into all of these other cases that led into, you know, us having a medical um, federally regulated system here in, in Canada. So we all sort of played a part in that through our civil disobedience. After that, that led me to starting Fresh Headies, which was the bubble bag company. And uh, that's really how I kind of took on that name, uh, Bubble Man, and, you know, came down this whole sort of hash, learning about hash and learning about the trichomes. And I, I, I was very lucky in 95 to meet Robert Connell Clark and to meet Dave Watson, aka the Skunk Man, who both became mentors guys I looked up to very much and they taught me an enormous amount about just, just the, the, the trichomes and the types and the, the, the terminologies. And so while all that was happening, I saw Yoop's photos. I always wanted to get into it. I'd actually asked a friend of mine, Jason King, who had done a couple of books called The Canna Bible, um, which is, I, you know, I, I almost hate to tell the story but it because it really kind of throws him under the bus. But he used to just be such a huge dick. So I think it's okay. I, I know he's a much nicer human being now. But, you know, I asked him back in the day. I was like, look, you know, you're taking these trichome photos. Could you help me learn how to take trichome photos? And he says, uh, yeah, sure. As soon as you teach me how to manufacture and uh, make bubble bags in Nepal and sell them all over the world through the internet. And he got all mad at me saying this was his job and that I can't, I was just like, whatever, dude. So Jason gets to be the guy that is the guy that tried to keep me from macro photography instead of the guy that turned me on to macro photography. So the, the guy who actually turned me on, um, he went by the name monkey on an Instagram or on a, on an international canographic website owned by gypsy Nirvana, the seed seller. He owned Seeds Direct, I believe was his company. So uh, this guy had incredible macro photographs of insects. And that's where you really find that it, the, the true macro photographers all seem to start with insects. And so this guy would shoot praying mantises and all these other bugs that he would order off the internet and hatch in his house. And they were spectacular, incredible. And I started communicating with him because he was a hash guy and I sold him some bags. 
And he was just really loved what I was doing. And with open hearts, he was, he told me what camera to buy, what lens to buy. He's like, I'll tell you the shutter speeds and everything that you need to have it set up on so that you can start getting a couple of great shots and you can widen it by going out from there. And I can, you know, go, go. He gave me a few websites to take macro courses on. Huge, huge inspiration, as well as another uh, fellow by the name of Perhaps Your Giddy Aunt. Now, these names sound ridiculous, but these are Internet handles from 10, 20 years ago. And Perhaps was the guy who took the photo. And if you if you go to um, bubblemanbrand.com and you go all the way down, you know, towards the bottom, uh, it's right above the bubble bags, uh, above the rosin and the hash. You'll see a, a clear dome photo that's just this beautiful clear dome hash shot. Well, the first one I ever saw and what inspired my photos like that was this guy, perhaps. And in 2004, when I went to Wembley and got a booth at the cannabis fair there, he showed up with his photos framed because he knew he had inspired me um with those photos uh so he framed them for me brought me beautiful bubble hash and we met and became friends and he was another one that really inspired me he told me about the same lens that monkey did and the settings and so that really led me to get the lens get the camera start taking my own photographs making my own mistakes and of course my bonus was that and jason probably knew this back in the day because jason was someone i would help get into grow rooms all the time nobody had access like me like for me to become a photographer, I had so much access. You have to understand, I could go, I could go in so many different grow rooms and so many different outdoor grows. It's just outrageous the content that I suddenly had available to me. So um, that really, you know, starting back in about 2007, 2008 is when I started doing macro photography, and it just. You know, within nine months, Ma uh, National Geographic had contacted me and wanted me to shoot uh, a three-shot series for um, one of their TV series called Taboo. So it was like, you know, with less than a year of shooting macro, and I've sold uh, National Geographic three images of cannabis. If you haven't seen Marcus's photography or macro photography of cannabis in general, I couldn't recommend it enough in that it's unbelievably fascinating and beautiful and it will spur your curiosity not only in cannabis or plants, but biology as a whole. It's almost like landing on another planet or stepping into another dimension without even having smoked anything. But back to Bubble Man's brush with the law. In the context of the still ongoing US-initiated drug war, Marcus was incredibly lucky to have gotten off without any jail time or fines, at least at the time. Had this been the U.S., he probably would have not gotten off so easily, so hooray for the Canadian legal system. Speaking of which, I wanted to get Bubble Man's impression of the rollout of legal recreational cannabis in Canada, which, according to some, has been somewhat of a disaster a year and a half on. Well, it's a really loaded question, and it's a hard question to answer, because you've got, you've got a specialty. Like, it's easy to criticize anyone. You know, it's easy to say, oh, what you're doing is no good. And it's easy to say the government at any point in time has done a, a piss poor job on, on doing it. At the same time, you know, here in Canada, look where we are. We can grow cannabis legally. Everyone in the country that's above 19 or 20 years old, you can get a license easy enough to grow it medically and to ha can have it medically. You can travel to countries like Jamaica with your medicine, with light, with license from Health Canada and the health department in Jamaica. We've come so far, they used to kick our doors down and arrest us and put us in cages, and now we've got what we've got. So I'm kind of happy about that. I'm also less worried about who makes the money. I just 
don't care. Like if they're like when people like Jody are posting, oh, this evil Fontino, he's he likened. There's a Canadian cop who's now part of a big LP company. Am I going to go support him? No. But are people sure? And should they? Why not? Like I like him being a cannabis company owner more than I like him being a fucking nasty evil cop arresting fucking cannabis users. Like are people completely insane when they don't realize? Look, when you open your arms and you say you want it for everyone. Now, of course, are they controlling it? Of course, they're controlling it. They control alcohol the same way. You know, the fact that it's as open as it is with alcohol, that's taken 100 plus years since 1920 or whenever prohibition ended. It's finally gotten to where it is today. Cannabis will get there. We've never taken too big of a step back. Does it drive me nuts like those guys? Absolutely. Is it like having a super anti-gay person be in charge of gay marriage? Yeah. It's just like that. It's completely fucking mental. At the same time, what are you going to do about it? We're not governments. We're not good at governmental work and passing bureaucratic laws and making sure it fits with the other rest of the system. That is like such a maze of insanity. I wouldn't even want to deal with it. And that's what the people in government have to deal with. So they have repercussions for all the decisions that they make. Me, I'm more focused on the fact that my mom can access cannabis from a website and sleep soundly because now cannabis regulations are in place. And I think people like Mark Emery don't see that part of the success. They've been so involved on the grassroots for so long. He spent time in prison, lots, uh, years of his life, and he fought very hard for this. So I totally, completely understand how he's upset. I just also see that the way he tried to go about it it just didn't necessarily work. You know, now he's doing something different. Like he's a smart guy, you know, he's not going to stop. And I, I've always applauded him and I've always sort of stood behind him and, and, you know, like been like, yeah, Mark, you're doing the good work, but I'm not one of the people that are all upset about the system. If you, you know, like just why not? Like for me, I'll just apply for a license. I'll just apply for an LP company. So that's, that's what I'm doing with my company Embark. You know, we are, we were, we're applying for a license. We're jumping through the hoops. We're following the regulations. That's all I fought for was to have a system that I could be a part of. And now while I work within the system, as I find mishaps and mistakes and things that I don't like, well, I'll bring those to my government. I'll bring them. I'll, you know, we lobby. We'll send our, in, our informers down and say, hey, let these guys know that that doesn't make any sense. And, and the one thing I can say about Health Canada is, because I've spoken with them on a multitude of occasions, they are listening to everyone in Canada. It's just a bureaucracy. So it's it's tough, you know, to be a part of a system like that and move it any faster than you think. You're, it's like becoming a young cop where you're like all excited. Oh, I'm going to fight crime on the streets of Chicago and I'm going to I'm going to lower the death rate by gunshots. Like, <laughs> good luck, dude. You know, like there's utopian vision in the world and we all love it. And that's, of course, we we should support utopian vision. But the world just crushes that out of everyone. Marcus touches on a couple pertinent points here, specifically putting people in cages and former prohibitionists now profiting off of cannabis. People were being jailed for simple cannabis use or possession. Now, since October of 2018, much fewer people are being prosecuted which means people are still being arrested and charged. And for what, despite so-called legalization? Well, driving with pot in the car, still illegal. Being over the 30-gram limit, a couple of grams over will get you a small fine, but if you're way over, you could be doing time. Buying from your dealer, aka your homie. In Canada, your government is now your official dealer, by law. 
or else. Which doesn't mean weed is now grown by your local councilman or police department. Your homie now has to be licensed by the government if he wants to stay in business. But if you're caught with an ounce or less from your homie, no policeman will want to open a case to find out if you paid your taxes on your purchase. However, if homie gets caught, he can be in some trouble. Also, selling to a friend is illegal, but gifting it is not. Driving with more than 2 nanograms of THC in your system, illegal. Now, this is a dangerous one for drivers, as it's very difficult to accurately measure how high someone is, even with a blood test, which the police has the right to demand if they have reason to suspect someone is driving high. Depending on the situation, if you're unlucky, you could be heavily fined, as well as do some time. Compared to what the situation used to be in Canada, or what it still is for the many people living under prohibition around the world, while far from perfect, it's a significant step in the right direction. And there will be many bumps ahead, but you cannot eliminate all the effects of 70 years of prohibition overnight. This will definitely take time and effort. As Marcus pointed out, Health Canada is communicating with the cannabis people, and that in itself is a wonderful thing, to be able to speak to a governing body without fear of retribution. Something we should be celebrating. Last but not least, uh, I couldn't speak to the Hashmaster without asking him about the amazing method of solventless extraction and dabbing. Well, solventless extraction, I started it in 1999, and there was pockets of people doing it prior, but it really, and of course, dry sift and traditional hashes have always been solventless, and those go back, you know, fairly long amount of times as well. For a dabbable product, that really kind of started in like 99, being able to use water and ice to produce something that's so melty you could dab on it. We didn't really know we were dabbing in the early days when we were creating different contraptions. We're from the, I'm from the prairie, so we, we, we started smoking hash with hot knives, just heating up a couple of knives, slapping a little ball, hitting it way too hot, which is absolutely just the most ridiculous thing. We were probably taking like 1100 degree dabs off of non-melty hash, you know, maybe 20% glandular trichome head. So, you know, now we have little tools like the TempTech, which is a little wireless unit. Uh, it's got a laser thermometer that the banger sits right above. Um, and just quite simply, you just put it like this and, uh, you know, the banger right over the little hole and it measures the the temperature of your banger. So I'll heat up my banger till about 700 degrees and then I'll allow it to drop. And right when it gets to about you know, 550, 560 degrees, I'll drop my, my dab in there. And it's, uh, it's just a wonderful, beautiful thing. Um, being able to vaporize off of a, a nice quartz dish or a nice sapphire dish. Uh, you can't imagine the difference, the subtle nuances that quartz and sapphire have versus any type of metal, titanium, glass, whatever. The way it reduces and holds heat is exactly how it's going to either preserve or destroy the terpene profile as that dab splatters down on your surface and how well it's evenly spread and all of these things come into play. So you see nowadays um, dabbing has gotten quite serious. We've got um, little sapphire beads and silicon carbide beads that go inside the banger. Um, you put these little beads inside the banger, um, and what it does is it uh, it spins the the little unit. Your audience won't be able to see, but they might be able to hear it. So it just spins that little guy around, and what it's doing is it's just pulling the oil 
and it's making sure it's painting the the quartz bowl evenly with the dab and allowing it to vaporize you know more preserved rather than blasting all in one little corner and the oil cooling that part of the banger down and the temperature dropping too low and you could do a bloody phd on dabbing but we've been doing it for almost 20 years I could talk shop all day with Bubble Man, but alas, we only have 30 minutes per episode. So before we wrap up, any nuggets of wisdom in the form of advice from Marcus? Well, you know what? It's funny because the times are so different now that whatever advice I would give for then would not be appropriate for now, if you can imagine. But what I will give people the advice about is to stay true to your path, you know, follow your passions. And make sure that you don't miss the opportunities that you manifest, whether subconsciously or consciously, because that's the one thing I see people kind of miss out on the most often. For instance, I manifested the creation of bubble bags into my life by getting arrested at a roadblock. I could have looked at that like a victim and said, oh, poor me. Woe is me. I'm facing 25 years in prison woe is me. No, those are choices I made. It was all good. It worked out great. And in the end, what it led me to was the creation of a company, was the teaching of tens of thousands of people worldwide how to make safely water extracted hash in this, you know, in the safety of their home. And that was, uh, that was a really big deal that I could have missed. And I could have gotten sucked down the rabbit hole of being a victim. And that's just an example. But you know, Just stay true to your path. Don't miss your manifestations. When you're constantly trying to manifest something, it's not going to show up in a very easily recognizable form every time. Sometimes it's unrecognizable. And that's when you really have to have your, you know, be paying attention and be aware and not to let that blow you by because, uh, well, because you're the one that manifested it in the first place. Some deep thoughts there. Well, sadly, it's time to say goodbye to our guest. Marcus Bubbleman Richardson, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to talk shop with me. And uh, I wanted to wish you good luck uh, on all of your projects, all of your endeavors. And uh, maybe I'll see you at some uh, cannabis trade fair somewhere out in the world. Yeah, sounds good, man. I'll definitely be at a whole ton of them. And uh, yeah, thanks for making time and invite me on your show. That does it for episode 32. Big props once again to Marcus Bubbleman Richardson for the very fun and informative interview. You can find him online at bubblemanbrand.com or at Instagram under bcbubbleman. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your friends and other hash enthusiasts. If you want to support the Critical Grass podcast other than spiritually, you can head on over to patreon.com slash criticalgrass and become a member. Remember, you are doing the Lord's work. Stay tuned for another exhilarating podcast. We have more exciting guests in the works. My name, once again, as always, is Bogdan. Stay hashy, my friends.